will be in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 this morning, as announced. And there's a new title underneath the bigger title, The Vindication of the Lord and His People. We're going to be looking for a few weeks here at the new creation. That's verses 1 through 8. As soon as we're finished sort of looking at the setting here of these verses, which sort of introduce a lot of the text in 21 and 22, we'll look at the new Jerusalem. And that will take us through almost the whole book. I plan by God's grace to open a new book and begin preaching a new series in January of 2022, or 23, right? Uh, we began right at COVID uh, with, with this journey through Revelation. Didn't know it was going to happen. But we began that way and just so thankful for God's leading and for the way he's stretched me personally uh, going through this wonderful book. So the world as we know it has come to a close when we finally reach chapter 21. The sinners who embraced the Lord Jesus Christ are all in their resurrected bodies. And those sinners who refuse to come to God have been judged in the lake of fire. We finished that, that text last week. Human history has come to a close. All that we know now has been left behind. And what lies ahead, we can only imagine, mostly through this account that we have here in Revelation 21 and 22. So let's begin with the summary of this eternal age. And that's what we find here in verses 1 through 8. Let's read together. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Among the various ways that the gospel has been understood, there is this idea out there among all the gospel presentations that your life will simply be better 
if you just add Jesus to the lineup of everything that's going on. Here's a typical person in our fallen world seeking fulfillment in career or relationships or activities and possessions and all of the worldly pleasures that we think of that are available to us in our popular culture, including sinful pleasures like drugs and alcohol and immorality. And because those things never bring happiness, true happiness. In fact, because they most often lead to brokenness and shattered lives. These same people will continually look for other things to bring them happiness. Some even try religion. Someone comes along and tells them, you know, Jesus can fix everything in your life. He'll put this back together. He'll put that back together. He'll give you all these things that you want and you don't have. Just pray this prayer. That sounds really good to them. So they add Jesus to the lineup, hoping that identifying as a Christian will make a difference. But I don't have to tell any of you who are here, I imagine, that merely saying the words of a prayer or identifying as a Christian not change a person's life. Those who come to Jesus Christ for salvation do not just add Jesus into everything else as another commodity. Those who come to Christ abandon everything else in desperation for a salvation that only Christ can provide. They recognize their need for forgiveness from a holy God and they turn from their sin and to the things of Christ. They, they abandon everything and grab onto him alone. And when they do that, their lives are utterly and profoundly and deeply transformed by Christ from the inside out. Some of you know that transformation. You have testimony of it. Some of you were so young, like, like me, when you got saved. That, I don't mean I'm young now. I'm mean like when I got saved. I was really young. And I don't remember experientially transforming, but it happened all the same. And I can only imagine what my life would have been like without Jesus Christ. And that is something that only God can do. And as a person grows in that relationship, the old loves and habits and pleasures begin to fall away. And they're replaced by new ones, new loves, new behaviors. This transformation is so radical that Paul compares it to God's act of creation in which he brought light out of darkness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let light be, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. A genuine walk with Christ is the outworking of an utter and complete transformation in which the old things in our lives pass away. They really do. If you claim to believe, be a believer in Christ, it doesn't mean you have to find a checklist and start checking things off, but you ought to be able to look back on time since you've been a believer and see that things are different, that things have been falling away, that Christ has been changing your loves, and that there is a newness to your life. And this is a microcosm 
a picture in miniature on the individual level of what God is doing on the cosmic level. The new creation that the Lord promises will come in Revelation 21 is not comprised of new things just added into the old. This is not like a home makeover. In the new creation, the old has passed away and the new has come. John's first words in this passage are, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. That is the old heaven and earth have passed away. It means they're gone. And in verse 2, John sees the new Jerusalem. And in verse 4, God wipes away evil things. And John says the former things have passed away. And in verse 5, God says, Behold, I am making all things new. When God does this, what he begins to do to us as believers in Jesus Christ, he is doing to the entire fallen world. And what he has begun, both individually and cosmically, he will complete by his grace. He will complete our newness, and he will complete the newness of the new earth. Now, as we look at this text, I think that we can see three profound ways in which God will do away with our present reality, what we see here right now. He will do away with that and create something new in its place. And this just isn't just some distant idea to give us hope right now. It is at least that. We ought to go away from the study of this text over the next couple of weeks with, with real encouragement of what God is doing in our lives. It is at least that. But as we look at it, these truths ought to resonate within the heart of every true child of God and shape how we think about life in the present, especially as we see the sin of the world now. And as we see the sin struggles in our own hearts now, and as we understand something of the righteousness of God, we should long for this coming time. But this coming time should also make us wise about the present. So what are these profound ways in which God will take away the old and create the new? Well, the first one jumps right off the page for us in verse 1, a new heaven and earth. John says in verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I want to ponder this amazing statement this morning. First, I want you to understand what John says here when he talks about the heaven and the earth. He's speaking of places, geographical places. Heaven is not the invisible place where those who are in Christ go to be with him when they pass away. That's not what this heaven is. Because as verses 2 and 3 describe, the heavenly city comes down to earth and God's dwelling place is with humankind. There's no more going to heaven anymore. We are in heaven. We're on, at heaven on earth Everything is here and God is here. That is a remarkable difference. Heaven refers to the skies and the space beyond the new globe. By saying heaven and earth, John is referring to the whole geographical existence. All of this in uninhabitable space, all of the inhabitable space, all of it is new. Everything that we look up in the sky and see, everything that we see in the earth, all that the Hubble telescope can show us. 
which is just a micro, just a, 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 a little tiny bit of what is really out there. All of it is new. Now, let's consider what God does in order to bring this new heaven and earth into existence. There's debate about that, actually. Uh, there are two main positions. The first is the idea that God wipes the earth clean and reconstructs it, fixing everything that's broken and bringing out the earth's true beauty as he intended it. It would be like the earth getting an extreme makeover. You know, like that reality show that used to be on uh, with Ty Pennington? You know, if anybody, does anybody remember that? Okay, some of you? Okay, just a, maybe a few of you. Well, if you don't, that's okay. Um, they, they, would, they would find a family member, or, or I should say a family, um, that had a need, and their home was not meeting that need. It was actually a, a pretty good concept. Uh, they would find, uh, for instance, a family who had adopted children because somebody, maybe the parents had been killed, and now they can't fit all of the children in the house, and, and they would want to retrofit the home, but they didn't have the money to do it. Maybe there was a dad serving in Afghanistan, and he was injured in the war, and, and now the house is falling apart, and he has special needs he has to have in the house, and they can't afford to fix it, and, and that sort of thing. They would find a, a family with this need, the producers of the show would show up at the house and they would surprise the family. I mean, sometimes you could tell it was staged, okay? But they would surprise the family and they would send them away on this exotic vacation. And in one week, they would completely update the house all the way down to the foundation if necessary. They'd retrofit the rooms. They'd, they'd find a new layout for the house. They'd repair any damage. Uh, they'd repaint, they'd make a picture-perfect lawn, they'd put furniture in it and all of this kind of thing so that when they were finished, not only was the house suitable for their family, it was a beautiful new home that they would come back to. And in some cases, depending on the need, they'd even pay off the mortgage of the home if they were trying to serve other people. And every episode was very emotional at the end when the family showed up and saw their home that had been completely redone, and they would walk through it with this amazement and gratitude for what this show had done for them. Some see the new creation like that, a process where God takes this messed up world that does not function the way he intended it to function and rearranges and cleans it up and beautifies it using the same elements and atoms that he spoke into existence in the original creation, making the world back into form the way he pronounced it, making it not only just good, but better than good, better than it was when he first created it. You can read Jewish literature that goes all the way back to the time of Christ. Some of this literature I'm referring to, they're actually apocalypses. They're, they're kind of like Revelation, except they're not in the Bible. Uh, the, the, the kind of literature Revelation is, some of you know, uh, this isn't the first account of it. There were other kinds of Revelation that were, that were written that the, the Jews would read and, and they would be pretended to be by somebody really famous, but it really wasn't. But they would, they would express their theology in these writings. And in some of this literature that was written sometimes a couple hundred years before Christ and sometimes a little bit after Christ, uh, in this literature, it talks about the earth being renewed or refreshed or perfected by God. One writing says that God will one day uh, perfect Eden and bring it back to the way it was and Mount Zion and make that as good as it used to be and Mount Moriah as good as it used to be. But other Jewish literature from the same time period takes a different position. 
In this literature, God does not merely reconstruct the world, but he recreates the world. He completely destroys the other creation and he starts over. In one of these writings, written supposedly by Enoch, this is the same Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 who was not and God took him. The Jews loved this character because he went up to heaven. And so they write this literature about the fact that he came back and told everybody what he saw. And this is the literature that came out of Enoch. There was a whole tradition of Enoch literature. And in, in, this, in this part, he's telling his son, Methuselah, okay, the guy who lived the longest, he's telling his son, Methuselah, how God had shown him a vision and one day the heaven was going to come crashing down to the earth and then the whole earth would be torn up and the trees uprooted and the mountains falling down and the hills falling down and then it was all going to be cast into the abyss. In other words, everything gone and a new earth in its place. Another author speaks of a new world coming and this time the new world would not carry the people who enter it into corruption like the first world did corrupting Adam and Eve. These are ideas written by the Jews immediately before and after the time of Christ in order to describe what they perceived the Old Testament saying to them about this new heaven and new earth. So which is right? Is God going to simply give the earth an extreme home makeover or is he going to destroy the earth and start over? I think we can find an answer to this question in other Bible prophecies such as Isaiah 65 and 66. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, uh, God, speaking through ideas, says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The verb create here is the Hebrew word bara which is used in the story of the original creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So if the word is used in the same way that is used in Genesis 1 and 2, it indicates a creation out of nothing. God speaking the new heaven and the new earth into existence, just like he spoke the first heaven and first earth into existence. And to emphasize this understanding, the text says that the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. It's all gone. Likewise, Isaiah 66, 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offering, offspring and your name remain. Now, the verb make here uh, is a much more common word. It's used like maybe 2,500 times in the Old Testament. So you can find it everywhere on every page. It does not carry the nuance of creating something out of nothing, but it is the word used several times in the original creation account. For example, God made the expanse of the firmament. He made the sun and the moon. He made the beasts of the earth. And this is the verb where it says, uh, where God says, let us make man in our image. That's the verb that's being used there in Isaiah 66. So if these prophecies in Isaiah shed any light on the question, it seems that God is creating something brand new, just like he did in the original creation. But we can also go to the New Testament. I'm going to go to 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter seems to follow the idea that the present earth will be completely and utterly destroyed and a new heaven and earth will take its place. 2 Peter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, 
What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, and he's probably talking about the one in Isaiah 65 and 66, according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This appears to be a complete dissolution of the present world and the creation of a new world. Even though the new heaven and earth will have some of the same features as the first heaven and earth, as we shall see, there will be a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth will have passed away. They will be gone. And what God has done to those of us who know Christ is to transform us on the inside to say in our hearts, let there be light, to create in us a new kind of life where we are completely separate from the old life in order to bring us to and prepare us for life in this new world. It's like he's equipping us now to live there in the future. And I'm going to add something here. The fact that it appears that the former world as we know it now will pass away does not mean that there's no continuity between our world now and the world then. God is not only redeeming us through the salvation brought about through the Son, but He is redeeming all of creation. Have you ever really thought about that in Romans chapter 8? Most of you, I think, are familiar with these words. But Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Why does creation care? Because the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. I mean, it wasn't creation's fault that Adam and Eve sinned. It was human beings who sinned. So creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. So God is not simply redeeming human beings, bringing them to a state of perfection. He's also redeeming the world. He wants to have a perfect world that has a state of perfection for his perfected people to inhabit. And that has implications for how we think about the world now. We don't mistreat the world that God created for us. We tend it and care for it like Adam was created to do, but we do so with the hope that one day God will finish the work, just like he will finish the work that he began in us. Now, there's one more statement that I want to look at in verse one that is very curious. John says, and the sea was no more. So if you like the sea, this comes as a bit of a disappointment, doesn't it? I mean, no ocean, no trips to the beach, no gathering shells on the shore, no seafood. The idea is disappointing, uh, and uh, it was actually disappointing to men like C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. In one of his writings, Spurgeon laments the idea of a new earth with no great and wide sea. He says, with its gleaming waves and shelly shores, 
Spurgeon says, a real physical world without a sea is mournful to imagine. It would be an iron ring without the sapphire which made it precious. So, wow, Spurgeon really liked the sea, but it's no wonder. Uh, he would often leave his church for months at a time and enjoy a sabbatical on the south shores of France on the beautiful Ligurian Sea. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, so it's easy to see why he would like the sea, you know, and, and feel that way about it. But why is there no more sea? What, what is going on here? It, it just seems sort of out of place to throw that in. And I think there's at least two explanations. One, the sea, especially in the ancient world, it represented something foreboding and ominous and dangerous. There was a fear of the sea. Monsters were in the sea in their minds. It probably are monsters in the sea, actually, what we call them. So much about the depths of the sea were unknown. Many people died trying to sail on the sea. And even today, with all of our modern technology, the ocean can be a very scary place. People still die at, at, because, of, of, because of the sea. But in the ancient world, the sea also represented evil and death. Remember the passage last week uh, that we finished up uh, in, in, in uh, chapter 20? There are three places the dead come out of in verse 13. Death, Hades, and the sea, right? The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And in verse 14, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Then two verses later, chapter 21, verse 1, neither is the sea anymore. If we think about the references of the sea throughout the book of Revelation, we're reminded that at the tail end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, the dragon Satan stands on the shore of the sea and he calls up the beast from the sea. In chapter 17, the great prostitute is over many waters that represent the people on earth who are pursuing to kill the Christians. And Revelation refers to the abyss from which the demonic creatures arise the place that the devil's confined to for a thousand years, this is the same word used for referring to the depths of the sea, the abyss or the deep. In fact, there's at least one passage we saw in Revelation where it's uncertain whether the text is referring to the depths of the sea or to the bottomless pit. So it might not be difficult to imagine why on the new earth where there is, there is nothing unclean, nothing evil, nothing that threatens that there are no more vast ocean depths. It doesn't mean perhaps that there are not lakes or even large bodies of water, but it appears that the ocean is gone. But there's another reason I think that there is no more sea on the new earth, and this may be even more significant. It simply is this. The sea divides. Oceans separate continents. Water keeps people apart. And one of the glorious realities of the new earth is the fact that people will dwell together with God. Verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The earth will be situated like the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness surrounding the tabernacle with God in the center the new Jerusalem, which becomes the entire world. If we think about this the right way, the whole earth being a temple for worshiping God and all the redeemed living together around the presence of God from every generation from Adam and Eve on. 
who are with God. This doesn't sound like a place where you can have these huge bodies of water separating people. And again, it doesn't mean that there's not lakes and beautiful scenery, maybe even large bodies of water, but I think it refers to the fact that there's a continuous landmass where people can all live with God. It means there's nothing threatening or evil or reminiscent of death, and it means there's nothing that divides, nothing that separates. Now, we're not going to press forward this morning to go to the next section of Revelation 21, 2 and following because we start dumping into a lot that is to cover. And I promise I will go more than one verse at a time, okay, when we come through. And I'm fascinated with this text. I've never had the privilege of preaching through it. Uh, the Studying the New Jerusalem, frankly, scares me. There's so much there and all this imagery or whatever. I, at this point in my life, I really don't know what I'm getting into yet. I want you to know that. I don't, I don't come to these sermons with all this knowledge of it. I'm, I'm a student of the Word and uh, trying to prepare it uh, to give to you. And I'm so excited uh, to do this. But I want us to appreciate the, the profound nature of everything that God is saying here. And this is where God's salvation is headed. A brand new heaven and earth with the things that we know now gone. And all that is beautiful that God has created through the redemption in Christ remaining. And this is what is going down. This is the final state. This is where God himself wants to take us. You look at the end, you know where the God of the universe, whose divine will is something we should all want, we know where he wants to take us. This is where he wants it all to end. In Revelation 21, 6, God says that he is going to bless us with abundant eternal life. God himself, speaking from his throne in verse 7, calls this water of life, our heritage. And he expresses his desire to be near us and share a family relationship with us, to be called his son, his child. And then he reminds us in verse 8 that those who have rejected him, evidenced by their sinful lives, will suffer just the opposite, eternal death. God is abolishing these sins once and for all while his people will remain with him forever. This should instruct us how we should live right now. As Peter puts it in chapter 3, if I can go back to this text for a few minutes, since all these things, that's the world as we know it, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be now? How? In lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Peter says that we should live holy and godly lives this week because we're getting closer and closer to the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, we should be waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. That means we should be eager to get there. And if we're eager to get there, we're eager to be like that person that God will make us to be when we get there. We should be like children who have their hearts when they're very young set on a particular occupation and it never changes. I don't know if you were that way or if you changed your mind a dozen times. 
You know, I was going to be a heart surgeon, you know, when I was a kid, you know, then a fireman, then a bus driver, you know, for a while. My mom reminds me, I, she, 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 I thought I was ascending the ladder of occupations, actually, but uh, I was actually going maybe in reverse. But, you know, some kids get on this thing and, and they never want to, to do anything else. Like some young men I've known who from an early age, they wanted to be in the military. I'm going to be very careful not to say what branch of the military, by the way. I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, Bobby's not here this morning. Uh, I always think about the fact that as a Marine, he could kill me with his bare hands. Uh, but but uh, is Marine, Army, whatever, this kid wants to be in the military. And so when they're young boys, they would wear military clothing and military gear. And they would be, it would be fake stuff at first. And then as they got older, it would be, it'd be more real stuff. They'd get picture books about the military. They would start reading more about the military as they got older, military history. They would begin to work out and build up their strength and endurance. They would learn how to handle firearms responsibly. They would have military posts on their walls. Other teens their age might start teasing them a little bit because they're always known as that guy who's going to be in the military. You know, when the yearbooks are signed, it's like, this is the guy who's going to go to the military. We all can see it coming because he's always wanting to be a soldier. And all of that so that he could finally graduate from high school and join the service. Now, you might think, what is all the use of dreaming about it and working out and reading all about it? If you join the military, you're going you're gonna to go to boot camp and they are going to train you. They're going to make you read things. They're going to make you work out. They're going to make you that soldier. And you might be doing it wrong, you know? So just wait till you get to boot camp. Let them do everything to you. Why waste all that time? Why not just go have fun like everybody else? If you have to ask that question, you've never known what it's like to yearn to do something that you are called to do that you have your heart set on and you were so sure of that calling and your heart was so burdened for it that you couldn't wait for that day and so you did everything you could now to be there already and that's exactly what peter is talking about here because you know that this is where god is pointing you this is where you're going to be that this is his desire for you one day. It's in his holy will. You're not satisfied just to sit around and wait for it. Doing everything you can to live like you're already there. You're concerned about your holiness. Your sin grieves you. You don't, you don't want to let your sin remain. You want to confess it and forsake it and learn how to grow in Christ so that you don't do that again and trust in his grace for that process. You live your life in hope of the return of the Lord. You're, you're looking for his return. You're expecting his return. It's all that really matters to you is using these few brief years that he gives you. And I don't care how old you are or how young you are. We, this, this time right now, as you're sitting here, this is going to be such a distant memory so soon. We're going to be shocked by how fast this time is going to go. And, and our calling is to say, God, what do you want us to do with our lives right now? How am I going to use these precious few minutes to serve you? And that's all that matters to you. Because as Peter says in verse 13, you are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I would say to you lovingly and graciously this morning that if you are truly saved, if your heart doesn't burn for this day, if you don't feel the slightest concern, 
then you are holding too tightly to the things of this creation, the first creation, the old world that is passing away. And you need to say, Lord, forgive my coldness toward the new world. Create in me a burning desire for what I am to be, that by your grace I may become a child who is yearning for what he is going to inherit for God's glory. And as we press forward into the text and explore this new creation, I want to ask God to give us his grace that the wonders of this new world will will persuade us and challenge us concerning how we should live and serve and hope for all that God is giving to us in the future. Father, thank you for...